Hello, I'm Terry Schultz and I am channeling Brussels. Getting newsmakers, movers and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policy shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This week's Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. And this week, we're back out at NATO headquarters to speak with the Ukrainian Foreign Minister, Pavlo Klimkin, who'd had a busy day. At the time of our interview, he'd just finished a meeting with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg after a morning with European Union foreign ministers. We spoke the day after Russian President Vladimir Putin was effortlessly reinstalled for six more years, and a couple of weeks after the nerve agent poisoning of former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter in Salisbury, England, which is widely blamed on Moscow, though the Russian government denies involvement. Both these events were high on the agenda of Foreign Minister Klimkin, who came to Brussels not just with his usual appeal for more support for Ukraine to defend itself against Kremlin tactics, but with a message to European leaders that Salisbury should be a wake-up call, that what has happened in Ukraine won't stay in Ukraine. Thank you very much for making time for us, first of all, My pleasure. Foreign Minister. So, Russia has just held elections, and you have already made some comments about those elections. Um, you've said, you've warned that Russia no longer has any red lines, and that Putin, with another another mandate, um, will stop at nothing to get what he wants. Um, what are you worried about, not just for Ukraine, but for Europe and for the rest of the world? It's uh, about the whole democratic community, because five years ago, many people did not believe uh, Putin uh, could uh, ever get uh, invaded Ukraine. Now, one year ago, many people did not believe at all that uh, they could uh, organize using nerve agents uh, on, uh, on the British soil. So fundamentally, there are no red lines here. And uh, it's about a comprehensive and coordinated answer. Without such answer, without a kind of platform for the whole transatlantic community, and I understand Ukraine as an important part of the transatlantic community, Russia would try to further meddle in uh, the democratic institutions. But he's been in power so long now, what you must be saying is that the response so far, sanctions, freezing, no business as usual, has not been enough. Yeah, but uh, there are other measures. There could be more targeted sanctions, uh, there could be more political pressure, there could be attempts to counter Russian non-conventional threats. It could be about energy, it could be about cyber, it could be about many issues. About football, you've suggested they nobody yeah, goes to FIFA, Definitely, right? <laughs> look, uh, but uh, you know, how can you say that Russia deserves such a football championship now after what uh, basically had happened uh, by us in Ukraine, uh, Crimea, Donbass, but also so many cases of meddling into elections uh, in Europe and all around the democratic world. But using nerve agents on the British soil, endangering British citizens, and doing it, raising the stakes intentionally just one week before the presidential elections in Russia, you understand uh, what does it mean? So we need tough, coordinated answer 
to the Russian threat. You've just seen the EU foreign ministers. Does it seem like Europe is going to mount such a such a response? Yeah, I believe uh, the mood uh, is good for shaping up such a response. What kind of measures will be taken, I can't say. You should ask uh, Federica Mogherini on that. But the mood is definitely different from before. Because of the poisoning? Because of uh, because of the sham elections in Crimea and all kinds of Russian actions, because of continuous destabilization, but now especially because of the poisoning. And it was a very clear atmosphere of solidarity with Boris Johnson, with the UK in this meeting. And what is important? The people put everything, Ukraine, uh, UK, Russian meddling, in one context. It's clearly understandable for everyone. Um, I wanted to ask something about elections. There's been some criticism of Ukraine for not letting the Russians in Ukraine vote. Why did you do that? Look, firstly, we said very clearly, the whole elections are not legitimate on the territory of the occupied Crimea because uh, the Russians uh, had one uh, single constituency. The, uh, the issue of legitimacy for these elections is definitely under question. But there is another point about security and safety around uh, Russian diplomatic uh, representations. In a, in a very emotional way, how should I explain to people uh, who lost their brothers in arms uh, or their relatives of their loved ones because of the Russian aggression, that uh, Russian elections should go just uh, this way. So we have to care also about people. And I believe it was good in the sense of safety and security yesterday in Ukraine. Um, some more comments that you've made um, this morning or so, some, um, about um, Gerhard Schroeder are also ah. get, making people very interested, especially the Germans. Um, and and they are, they're quite interested. You're saying that Gerhard Schroeder, former German Chancellor, and people like him who are voluntarily representing Russian interests abroad should be put under EU sanctions. No, no, no. I have not said that. That's but what the headline said. I, I did say, and it's very important, that the EU, both nationally at the EU level, should act against such persons because uh, they keep driving projects, Russian projects, uh, supported by uh, Russian companies which are under sanctions and which uh, are used now as a tool in the sense of Russian meddling into, uh, into the European Union. So uh, on such lobbyists like Herr Schroeder, there should be a clear understanding what is their role and there should be a clear under understanding what, what is the way forward. It's not about sanctioning them tomorrow and after tomorrow, let's be fair. But in a political sense, I believe, people like Herr Schroeder totally lost their credibility. And in this sense, there should be a political drive in acting against them. Um, I've just watched you speak on a panel where you got support for that from your other panelists. Yeah, Nobody disagreed with you. German uh, parliamentarian David McAllister said, I agree. I, I'm, it's, it's a shame that he, he's doing that. Do you think that's something that could happen as people try to d drill down harder on Moscow? Yeah, it's, it's of course, because it's the only way forward. Otherwise, Moscow will come and simply try to meddle into the whole way how the democratic institution here in the European Union basically in the whole civilized world function. And Russia has been already doing that. 
Tolerating that would mean that Putin could do something else any other day. And remember, what has been tested in Ukraine? You know, Russian propaganda after MH17 invasion, uh, cyber, uh, terrorist attacks, uh, everything now could be tested here. And the same pattern of propaganda and fake news after MH17 now come back with Russian denial of what had happened in Salisbury. So everyone should be acutely aware of it. So we're talking here at NATO where you've just met with Secretary General Stoltenberg um, and Ukraine has now um, asked formally for a map, a membership action plan. Um, are you encouraged? Do you think that this will happen quickly? I mean, we've been talking about this with Ukraine for so many years, since Bucharest and, and before. Uh, of course, time is here important. But for me, it's a point of substance. Because I would like my Ukraine to be seen as a part of transatlantic community as, uh, and as the eastern flank of NATO. We need substance and we need real work on the ground with uh, our security and defense sector reformed up to the net standards. Whether it's about uh, map uh, today, tomorrow and after tomorrow, it's of course an important question. But the first one is definitely about substance. And now the whole atmosphere between Ukraine and NATO is completely different. It's like, uh, you know, uh, talking between allies and working between allies. So completely different from the time before. Like I was sitting in the meeting with the EU foreign ministers and in the same way feeling as a, as a part of this reality. So it's completely different, both in substance and atmosphere. And it's the most important point for me. So in a sense, I mean, it sounds like this is sort of a zero-sum game for Russia and Ukraine. The worse Russia behaves, the more the EU understands that what you've been telling them for years about what you need and what you've seen is true. The more NATO sees that they need to protect you. I mean, that's unfortunately the way it seems to be working, doesn't it? Unfortunately, understanding of Russian behavior and Russian intention had not come from the very beginning. And uh, some people uh, need time to understand uh, what is Russia about, what is current Russia about, what is this uh, Kremlin regime is about. But it's coming. It's coming definitely in the sense of clear understanding uh, what Russia is able to, uh, to deliver, uh, how Russia is able to meddle in the sense of democratic institutions. There are some new proposals, um, including from former NATO Secretary General um, Andres Paul Rasmussen, about peacekeeping, about the international peacekeeping troop. They're saying... Look, it's basically about our proposals, because uh, <laughs> we extended these proposals at the beginning of 2015. Okay, well, let's talk about your proposals. Um, one of the problems has been that Russia doesn't want to allow peacekeepers everywhere. They want to severely control the access of them, and uh, you're, you're on board with them being everywhere all over the country. And at least this Rasmussen proposal said there needs to be at least 20,000 personnel. Uh, do you think that would work? Look, it's, it's not about the number of troops. It's about uh, the concept. It's about and real not mandate. Not just troops, civilian help as well, right? Yeah, of course, it's about police component. It's about civil administration. And the whole formula means uh, Russia out and the international community in. And we need either real peacekeepers or no peacekeepers at all. Well, you need a peace first. Yes, fundamentally, <laughs> because we need hard security and after that broad security. And for that, we need real peacekeeping mission and not a kind of exercise proposed by Russia. What Russia needs 
in the occupied Donbass is to retain their proxies, is to legitimize their protectorate and then push it back to Ukraine as a kind of Trojan horse. It's not going to happen. So you don't think the peacekeeping force is going to happen? You don't think Russia is going to agree? I believe we need consistent pressure on Russia in the sense of delivering on real peacekeepers in order to control the whole Donbass from the very beginning, starting from real security on the ground and going further to broad security and to the preparation of elections. So it should be about real peacekeeping force. To be fair, though, I'm a pretty avid reader of the OSCE monitoring missions reports, daily reports and spot reports, and they don't place all the blame on one side. They say Ukraine needs to do more, too. Are you willing to do that? Um, or do you say you can't unless Russia pulls back as well? Look, of course, uh, we need to deliver security on the ground. But with all the subversive activities, with all the shellings from prohibited heavy weaponry, including heavy motors and heavy hovitzes, we need to care about our people. Because the whole idea of the Russians is to engage in different kinds of provocations on the ground. And we had a number of examples for that. Well, if you see all of the things that are happening now, does it make it less and less likely that there's going to be peace? peace in eastern Ukraine and that Crimea will ever come back to your territory? Are things looking more Not dismal at than all. ever? I am personally convinced it, uh, it will be sorted out because uh, Russia does not live in a vacuum. Russia can't live under political pressure, under sanctions, and everyone understands now that Russia keeps raising the stakes. So fundamentally, it's about people on the ground. And people on the ground don't want Russia to be the occupational force. Even in the Donbass? Even in the Donbass, of course. It's about, uh, you know, Russian regular troops, Russian mercenaries, and a couple of thousand of locals who are really in control. And it's under the cloud of the Russian special services and Russian militaries. So how can you... <laughs> You know, just years, uh, years before, it was all about pro-Ukrainian Donbass. And now it, uh, it has changed uh, in a magical way. It does not work this way. It's about the Russians fully controlling the situation in the occupied Donbass. Okay, um, one last question. One of the other proposals coming out of Brussels is that there be a European special representative, like our friend Kurt Volker. Um, do you think that would be good? Do you think another special rep? I mean, he hasn't, by his own well, admission, it's, it's he hasn't not, made a lot of progress. It's not about persons. It's about uh, coordinated and consistent pressure on Russia. Whether help? it would be France and Germany, whether it would be a kind of European representative of the top, on the top, we could discuss further. Normandy hasn't worked, so... Would another special representative help? Normandy was important on a number of issues. So Normandy is important now in the sense of talking to the Russians. Whether we need another person, let's discuss it. Okay, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. That's Ukrainian Foreign Minister Pavlo Klimkin speaking to me at NATO headquarters about his warnings to European leaders that Russia no longer has any red lines after the poisoning of a former Russian spy in Britain an act widely blamed on Moscow, which denies involvement. That's all for now. Thanks to Ukrainian Foreign Minister Pavlo Klimkin for putting me on his busy agenda. Thanks to the Atlantic Council, as always, for sponsoring Channel in Brussels. And most of all, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Terry Schultz. See you next time.